Hi, I'm Ali Hassan, host of CBC's Laugh Out Loud. Do you like to laugh? Because we're serving up big laughs each week. We feature comedians from across Canada. You might already be fans of some of them, and others might be new discoveries. We record emerging comedians and established pros in front of live audiences all across the country, and we promise that you'll be literally laughing out loud. You can find Laugh Out Loud on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, Tom Power here. This week on Q, you'll be hearing some of our favorite conversations over the past little while, some of the best of Q. So if you're new to the show, I really hope you dig these. If you're not new to the show, actually, I really hope you dig these. But a reminder, if you're not already subscribed to our podcast, I would love it if you do that and and share it with your friends and family. And you can reach out to me whenever you want, q at cbc.ca. All right, let's get going. I was watching the Academy Awards the other week, and like a lot of Canadians, I felt so much joy and pride when Women Talking and Sarah Pauly won for Best Adapted Screenplay. And I was also just so delighted to see Sheila McCarthy. She's not just one of the stars of the film, but she's an icon of Canadian film and TV. It was nice to see her get her due. Sheila McCarthy is here for a conversation about her incredible career and the ups and downs along the way. That's coming up. Plus, Veer Das, one of the biggest comedians in the history of India, sells out stadiums there does a speech in Washington, D.C., all of a sudden is afraid to go home because he was labeled a terrorist and was told he'd be arrested. So he's responding to all that the best way he knows how, through comedy. Veer Das will be here to talk about that. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. If you did watch the Oscars, you'll know it was a pretty big year for Canadian artists. One of the biggest wins of the night was Sarah Polly. She won for Best Adapted Screenplay for her film Women Talking. Is this incredible film about a group of women reckoning with a series of assaults in their religious colony. It's based on a novel, by the way, by another Canadian, Miriam Taves. So let's stay in the Canadian thing a little bit here. Let's talk about Sheila McCarthy. Sheila McCarthy has starred in some of the most iconic Canadian TV and film of all time. Street Legal, Little Mosque on the Prairie, pretty much the whole Anne of Green Gables universe. Now, if you're listening to this not in Canada, that's kind of like our version of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Anne of Green Gables universe. It just has more looms. Sheila made history by starring in the film I've Heard the Mermaid Singing, which in 1987 became the first Canadian English language film to ever win a prize at the Cannes Film Festival. And now Sheila's in Women Talking, the latest in a round of Canadian films to win an Oscar. I think personally that she's part of the story of Canadian TV and film that led us to having this moment. So Sheila came into our studio to talk about her whole journey. But I wanted to start with the story I'd heard that she was brought into the CBC one time to read one of the most famous old English poems of all time, Beowulf. Here's my conversation with Sheila McCarthy. Yes, I did. Oh, my goodness. Is that true? I think I'm still somewhere in, the, somewhere in this building doing it. Yes, it's a, one of the hardest things I've ever done with Greg Sinclair. Yes, yes. Hygelac fell, and the shelter of Hirdred's shield proved useless against the fierce aggression of the Shilfings. Something. How long did that take you to read? Um, I think it was about a week because I kept screwing up because, I, you know— there's a lot of words in that. Yeah, well, it's not like poem. reading a four-minute thing. No, and 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 so many of the words were sort of phonetically in front of me that then were just it was that was the challenge. I, I want to talk about uh, uh, I want to talk about women talking. I want to talk about um, I've heard the mermaid singing, but I want to start uh, sort of in the earliest days. And the story, as I understand it, 
is um, you saw Peter Pan mm-hmm. on TV mm-hmm. when that, you were a kid, and that oh. was the well, you know. Yeah, Mary Martin's Peter Pan. And I think about this a lot because it's not like we were watching it eight times a day like my kids grew up watching The Wizard of Oz, you know, on on their VHS. We saw Peter Pan, I think, three years in a row once. And it had such an – made such an indelible impression on me. Where was this? Where did you grow up? Um, in in Thornhill. In Thornhill, yeah. so just outside of Toronto. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm mm-hmm. imagining TV on the carpet yep. with the drawers in it. Yep, yep. S- sitting Pushing on the, floor. the button. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I remember pressed right up. Watching Mary Martin was just pure magic. And and I did get to play Peter Pan for Ross Petty at the, at the Elgin um, many years later and actually probably could have hung up my tap shoes after I got to fly. But what was the Peter Pan <laughs> thing, the um – was that the, oh, I think I want to do something like oh, this? Oh, yeah, yeah. And my parents almost sent me to the National Ballet. It was about dancing. I think it was about watching The Nutcracker, watching Peter Pan. Um, but they sent, they didn't want to drive all the way downtown. So they sent me to the Allen and Blanche Lund School of Dance in Willowdale instead, which was really fortuitous because I was on stage doing shows when I was six. And that. And, what, and what's the story? So then you were, you were in a production of The Wizard of Oz, right? And that was. Oh, wow. Uh, yes, that was my first role. How uh, old were you then? Ten. Okay. And I played the Wicked Witch of the West and um, I killed it. I, I remember getting a lot of laughter and, I, and that was, you know, that was the start of. Tell me more about that. And I was quite quiet. I was a very shy kid. Yeah, but, you, you but were a shy kid. Yeah, I was a really shy kid. But I, but I remember loving that applause and loving that um, adoration. <laughs> you, you're on stage at ten years old. Mm-hmm. You you get a laugh mm-hmm. and you get people are clapping for you. I guess so. And you realize, like, oh, I like, I want to chase more of this feeling. Yeah, and you know, I was this gawky little bird of a kid. Like I was never the girl next door. I, I, I grew up, you know, being the character kind of actress that maybe I'm growing into now. <laughs> so, but that was okay with me. That was always okay with me because I always felt that that was um, going to get me some really great parts along the way, I guess. Um, how do you learn to accept the gawkiness? I guess I loved people laughing at me. You know, that gave me uh, confidence. I stood out, I think, uh, from the chorus. Yeah. And forged my way through a career uh, of playing some fabulous parts. I just felt there was going to be room for me somewhere. You, you, you um, realize that the things that are maybe a bit different about you might be able to be used to your advantage. Mm-hmm. I guess so. Mm-hmm. You do this incredible thing. You go to New York City to study with the legendary acting coach, uh, Uta Hagen, mm-hmm. right? Uh, she worked with Judy Garland, Jack Lemmon, Whoopi Goldberg. It, I mean, what makes you want – and you used a Canada Council grant to do it? I, I did. Yeah. I did. And, you know, she um, she liked to work with dancers because of our discipline. And I had been studying for – you know, dancing for 20 years. So she she loved that about my work, I think. And then she kind of said, now let's just – Let's mess it up a little bit. Let's screw around with it. But she loved the idea of uh, working with me because I was a dancer. I mean, but that's like, that, that sounds like a profound thing to do to, in, as a Canadian actor to just leave one summer. Well, I think a lot of uh, – yes, I think a, a lot of uh, actors were doing that. I think the Canada Council grants were quite available at the time. And I 
had friends and and colleagues who had studied with Uta Hagen, and and I'd read her book, and I just thought she's going to suit me because she taught acting like a plumber learns how to plumb. It was a very practical approach as opposed to the Meisner method or or um, Stella Adler that was much more method. And having been a dancer, I think I understood props and character through the physical because that's what I'd been doing my whole life. And indeed, that is really what I learned in her class. Yeah, give me give me an example of one like lesson you learned from oh, her. This is a good one. I did a scene from um, a Prisoner on Second Avenue, and it was a scene where my husband and I walk in, and the house is on fire, and and I uh, I I thought because I really hadn't opened my mouth very much that I should just be hysterical, and I walked in and I played the scene, and after the scene was over, Udo Hagen said she always said, "So what can you tell me?" And I said, "Well, I thought, I thought that was pretty good," and then she said, "Well, I'm going to tell you a story." I was out in the Hamptons where I live and my house was on fire and I went to my next door neighbor and knocked on the door and said, I've got this incredible thing going on at my house right now and my house is on fire, super calm. And she looked at me, she went, do you get it? And I said, I think so. And I did the scene again and I realized I'd been playing the panic as opposed to what one really does when one's in shock, which is perhaps to do nothing. And that the comedy gold of Neil Simon writing that scene was not to be at number 10, but what to be at number one playing the scene. And it was much more successful. And I, that was a big lesson for me. You learned that the panic and the anxiety and the stress and all that stuff that you, mm-hmm. you had to show in that moment. Mm-hmm. Was, was better to be shown with how people might actually show it. Absolutely. I remember being robbed once and I turned to my uh, boyfriend at the time and I, sa- I started calling him Peg, my sister's name. Peg. Peg. And I realized I was in shock and that, you know, that is human nature. So Uta Hagen taught me that. So it was just a wonderful lesson I've used, I guess, in a couple of different situations. But that that was a good one. So then you come back to Toronto <laughs> and you work you work in uh, Yuck Yucks, right? You work at the oh. comedy club. <laughs> well, I was a waitress at Yuck Yucks. You I were mean, a waitress at Yuck Yucks. I was Yuck a waitress at Yuck Yucks. Who, who was coming through then? Oh, my goodness. Um, uh, Mike Myers was there. Uh, Chaz Lowther was there. Sheila Gostick, one of the only female comics, was there. Um, and and uh, Al Waxman used to come in. and The King of Kensington. The King of Ken- he used to come in and he used to write down the jokes that people were telling. And Mark Breslin said to me, you have to go and bust him for writing down people's jokes. And Mark Breslin, he knew, I was... Let's just say the owner of Yuck The Yuck owner Yuck. of Yuck Yucks. Yeah. And he would fire me every night as a joke. And I would put on like 20 wristwatches. And he'd say, you stole those from all the cu- the customers. And, and Hold on. Al Waxman was in the corner writing down jokes and you had <laughs> yes. to tell him to stop? Yes. I love this so much. He <laughs> oh, was trying to, he was, he was, he was cribbing a few little lines there. You I, get it. I got to write a book. You um, do. I know. But uh, yeah, that was, um, you know, I was still waiting on the table. So it was... I wasn't brave, and I never thought of myself as a stand-up, not in a million years. But the the pinnacle of that little job was Robin Williams came in one night. Robin Williams came to you? He came to do, and he was he came he was here to do um, Peter Zosky's show when it was on TV, and he had the suspenders and the buttons, and I he changed comedy that night. I could see every comedian in Yuck Yucks just like their mouths dropped. It was he was. Doing Robin Williams. This was before um, his show Mork and Mindy, and I was vacuuming at the end of the night, putting chairs up on tables. And he came up to me and he went, "Stop! 
stop stereo sculpture. And he did a whole improv around me. And uh, I said, I saw you on Happy Days. And he said, yeah, yeah, I, I played this character called Mork on Happy Days. And I said, well, what are you doing now? And he said, I'm going to quit the business. I'm going to go move to the California mountains with my wife, who's a dancer, and open a serenity tank emporium for out-of-work actors. You can't make this stuff up. And I said, wow, do you want to come to my Second City class? And uh, You were taking me, a Second City? I was. I was taking a improv, yeah, improv. And he came and we met for coffee and he came to my Second City class the next day. He came to your Second yes, City? Yes, he did. And what happened then? Um, you know, people didn't really know who he was. And he sort of laid back when we, we could feel a presence. But he didn't upstage any of us. And he was in the class? Yeah, he took the class. He wanted to work out. Robin Williams, yes. who at this point is yes. just about to do yep. Mork and Mindy, yep. Yep. is already like this huge star at the comedy store in LA. Yep. And no, he just wanted to work out. He wanted to exercise. And Steve Campman was the teacher, I think kind of knew who he was. But he had, And then literally six months later, there he is on the cover of TV Guide magazine, Mork and Mindy. And uh, yeah, that was my Robin Williams moment. <laughs> I love hearing a story like that about Robin Williams. I also love that he didn't show up, everybody, at the improv class. Isn't that nice? You're listening to my conversation with an icon of Canadian TV and film, Sheila McCarthy. And up until now, it's a, it's a normal life in the arts, right? You're, you're doing some serving on the side. You're taking some roles where you can. There's one film that changed Sheila McCarthy's life, and I wanted to ask her about it. Take a listen. Let's let's talk about this. Um, Thirty-five years ago, you star in a film <laughs> that would go on to make history as the first English-language Canadian film to win an award at Cannes. I have another surprise for you right now. So we reached out to one of your co-stars in the film, uh, the author Anne Marie McDonald, oh, and, wow. and take a listen to this. In 1987, I had the great pleasure and the honor of working with Sheila on. I've heard the mermaids singing. I, I knew then, and it has been, you know, corroborated over the years that she's a brilliant actor, but not only a brilliant actor, she's a brilliant comedian. And for me, that's the highest praise. That's a celebrated Canadian author Anne-Marie MacDonald talking about working with my guest, Sheila McCarthy, and I've heard The Mermaid Singing, which, if you, if you don't know, is this beautiful film about a Toronto woman in her early 30s who feels her whole world opening up when she starts working for an art curator. Um, what, what goes through your mind listening to that clip from memory? Just oh, I just, I'm reliving, I'm just, in my mind, one of the reviews said that if Woody Allen had a, it was Woody Allen, Woody Allen had a child with Goldie Hawn mixed with Woody Woodpecker. It would be Sheila McCarthy and I've heard the mermaids singing. Hello. My name is Polly Vandersma and I'm a girl Friday. Well, actually, I became a person Friday a couple years ago. I didn't change the job very much. You know, oh, I that well that movie changed my career. Of course, uh, it was a huge watershed moment for me, and it, that movie continues to resonate today somehow. It, it's a sort of timeless theme, and it's it's a, still a, a, a beautiful film. I'm so proud to be part of it. I, at the time, I I had just lost a big American series called VH Adderley, and I was kind of bummed. And my agent said, "Oh, there's this little Canadian movie. Do you want?" I thought nobody would see it, and I sort of dragged myself to the audition. Not you know, it's like whatever. And then three auditions later, four auditions later, 
I thought nobody can play this part. And I said to Patricia Rosema, please cast me in this part. I really, I know the lines now. <laughs> you know, And she did. I mean, that's surprising to me because it does feel like it was made for you, you know? We didn't know each other. And not a, all those words were written by Patricia Rosema. And it was just, uh, at the time, I thought no one will watch this movie, maybe my mom. Um, and then when it opened and exploded at the Cannes Film Festival, we had no photos. We had no still photos. My father took the, the photo of, that's on the poster. Uh, Your dad took he, it? My dad took that photo. And um, really, we had no idea the impact that, that film was going to have uh, so it was really life-altering for me, and I loved it. I loved going to the Cannes Film Festival. I mean, I was 30, and I was doing a season at Stratford at the time, and I, I think I was pregnant, and there was just like a lot going on. But I remember feeling like a big, huge star, and I was so happy to be, to, to be there. What, what, what went through your mind when you first saw the script? Uh, I thought... That's I, I still have that script. I thought, what a great part! What a, and who would be interested in this film? Who would be interested? Oh, I'll, I'll tell you another thing that went through my mind, because it has lesbian overtones in it. I was worried about what my mother's bridge club might think if I was playing a lesbian, and um, and then by the time I finished reading the script, I didn't get to be one really, and I was kind of bummed. <laughs> and and then I thought, well. There's going to be a lot of women coming on to me now, and nobody did. And I was kind of disappointed by that and thinking, <laughs> wow, this is just – I, I don't know why I'm telling that story, but it was just, you know, my ex – I was just worried about my mother, really. But she loved it. Oh, good. She loved it. My Yeah, she just thought it was great. Why do you think the film – why do you think – it's a great story. Why do you think the film – I mean, you're right. There was no, um, as far as I can tell, there was no um, precedent for a Canadian film mm -hmm. to do that well, especially at Cannes, like mm -hmm. the biggest film festival in the entire world, mm -hmm. with a bit of distance, with 35 years of distance. Can you, can you get there? Can you, any idea why? You know, the movie is not, the movie is the Walter Mitty. It's the, uh, Polly is the quintessential underdog that everybody in the universe can relate to. It's that, that, you know, whenever I'm approaching a character, it's always about what are they not good at? What are they failing at? What are they afraid of? And Polly was just loaded with that kind of, with those kinds of foibles. Exquisitely wrought equal librium of equivalent opposites maintains an organic integrity of translucent translucent uh, structural elements i've went around the world with that film and even now it's because i'm down in la with women talking they're still talking about mermaids they're still talking about uh how touching it is and how um it has, it's still affecting people. And I think that that's what Patricia Rosema wrote. She wrote this incredibly long-lasting character that people can still relate to, you know. It was an amazing moment at Cannes. And I remember being at a great big party and we were all very, very drunk. And I remember somebody saying to me, Sheila, um, this is a big moment for you. Where do you live? And I said, oh, I have a farm in Stratford. And 
Um, that was a big fat lie because I didn't. But I had had a lot of champagne, and Patricia said, "No, you don't. You have a little house." And what I was thanks, Patricia. Thanks, but it was okay because she like she busted me. But it was a really good thing because I think I was trying to be Meryl Streep. I had a farm enough. I my I think I knew Meryl Streep had a farm in Connecticut, and I was trying to copy her or something. And I was like, oh. Anyway, I went home and we bought a farm. Oh. We moved to a farm in Stratford. You so. know, you know, some would say you manifested it. That's what I they did. Do. I guess I did. Yeah. Well, what did you say to me just then? You said, when I take on a role, I'm interested in what the character is afraid of and what they haven't done. What they're not good at. What they're not good at. Why is that interesting to you? Oh, I think there's just so much gold to be mined in... Um, the human condition and you know what what propels us to do what we do and not always successfully and uh, those are the kinds of characters I like to um, watch so and fall you, in love with you know when you when you get offered a role or when mm-hmm. you take a role you 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 what you you look into what what they're not good at what like what do you have an example um you know, like in Little Mosque on the Prairie, when I played Sarah Hamoudi, she was kind of a failed Muslim. So will you be home for dinner? I should be. What are we having? Uh, couscous, chicken curry, and a veggie stir-fry. Mom, you're really getting ambitious. Yeah. In that case, I'll definitely be there. i got to get my purse. Good. You'll have to take up ready at quarter two, right? Of course. Good. You know, she wasn't very good at it, which I think was uh, a real learning curve for people watching that show, even realizing that there are people that are not great and they don't there's not just one way of being a muslim or a catholic or whatever yeah you can fail you can at, yeah. yeah and that that there's comedy to be mined in there that is so delightful and so much fun to play um and that's probably from growing up the way i felt about myself too is that that was a it's a natural thing for me to go to you know uh what am i afraid of growing up feeling a bit gangly yeah. a bit yeah. awkward a bit yeah. got yeah, I never, you know, got the boyfriends, you know, just tap dancing in the corner for attention. You know, I think that that is, there's just great stuff to uh, to mine. From the conversations I've been able to have here on, on the show with people like you, it it's, it strikes me that that what seems like acting, acting can seem like a bunch of people wanting a lot of attention and getting, you know, getting a lot, you know, getting to play, pretend and all that stuff. And that's mm-hmm. beautiful. But the more I do this job, the more I realize that I think acting is a lovely way of com- of get- getting compassion, mm-hmm. finding empathy, finding compassion for kind of anybody. I love that. I I actually am directing more now and um, teaching, yeah. and um, which are really fun hats for me. And and uh, part of what I love to impart is is are those notions that that it's not a cure for cancer. And give yourself as much of a safety net as you can and play. And I think that we always um, – we can forget that as actors. You get to go to work every oh. day? I mean, how lucky is that? Can you, can you talk more about Little Mosque in the Prairie? Oh, well, that was, that was so much fun. First of all, we ran for six years. It was 
such an unexpected show during the climate of 9-11. I was so proud for the CBC to to take it on. And, you know, I had friends in New York say, do you need a bodyguard now? And I go, no, you don't understand. This is this is um, Green Acres with Muslims. Yes, Muslim men snore too. And it was sort of I Love Lucy with, uh, you know, a, a blended religious background. But it was a sweet, funny uh, uh, look into that world that at the same time was perhaps educating, you know, uh, uh, the world. And it was uh, an incredible six years working with people like, you know, uh, Neil Crone and and Deb McGrath. Um, I mean, I think that's why I did the show. I got to work with the one and only Deb McGrath. And um, it was just a love fest. I mean, we were, we laughed for six years and it was just a gift. Um, Little Mosque on the Prairie was not just a big CBC show. It aired in 83 countries. Wow. It, uh, incl- it aired in the United Arab Emirates. It, it aired in Turkey. When you look up the show uh, to this day on YouTube, almost every clip you find is subtitled in Arabic. You know, it's being shared. I mean, uh, do you have a memory of someone talking to you about that show, what it might have meant to them? Oh, I've got a th- thousands. It, it, and, and even now um, – I would say especially um, young Muslim girls come up to me and say thank you for that show. Thank you for thank you for um, opening the window and letting us see our families on on television. And because there wasn't a lot of that at the time, and yeah. uh, you know that it, CBC took a, a leap of faith to to produce mm-hmm. that show. And sometimes I think would that show be on now? I mean, you know, uh, who knows. One of the most talked about films of the year, directed by Sarah Polly, we've been talking, adapted from the uh, incredible novel by, by Miriam Taves. I loved this film so much. I mean, I love the book um, and I love the film adaptation. For, for those who have not seen it yet, I, I heartily recommend that you do. It is about a group of women in a religious colony who have to reckon with a series of assaults. The assaults are true to life that the assaults did happen in in this community um the the response to it which is a, a group of women standing in sort of a hayloft discussing about whether they're going to leave whether they're going to fight or whether they're going to do nothing is uh, is imagined as, as miriam says mm-hmm. in the book and as sari says in the film it's an active female imagination but the majority of the film it is, is in one room literally women talking about what to do um talk to me a little bit about this oh know. well you know, I was coming out of COVID and um, uh, my agent said, Sarah Polly would like to Zoom with you. And we spent an hour and a half. We went through the whole script, you know, with a fine tooth comb. And she talked about Greta, the role I I was up for. And she talked about the comedy of Greta and sort of her wryness. And, we, and um, she thought that I was a bit young <laughs> Or the part. Can you tell, just for yeah. people who haven't seen it, can you give us a little context on Greta? Well, Greta is one of the elders. There's eight of us and then one man, um, August Ben Wishaw, who documents because we are illiterate. We don't read. We don't write. And we have been elected by the colony to be in the loft for two days and there's a ticking clock to decide whether um, after our um, – vicious assaults in the night by the men of the colony after being horse tranquilized, we need to do something. And are we going to stay and fight? Are we going to stay and do nothing? Or are we going to leave? And so we've been elected um, to vote 
and then have a sort of quorum in the loft for two days to decide what we're going to do. So Greta is one of the older uh, of, of the women. She's a mother. She's a grandmother. She's sort of a gentle soul with a pretty wry sense of humor. Uh, we, I got off from that Zoom, and I felt very much the way I did with mermaids. I thought, oh, wow, I really want this part, which I had not felt for a very long time. I, I mm. knew at the time that it was going to be important. I mean, I think you can't really know the scope of how important a film might be. Until you have people coming up to you, telling you, um, because you're too si- inside the character and you're too. But um, I didn't hear for three weeks and I thought, wow, that's just not going to happen. And anyway, it did. I, I understand that. Um, so there's a scene. Well, you know what? Why don't you tell the story uh, where I think Sarah took your advice oh, on something. Oh. But before you, before you tell, tell uh, pe- folks the advice that – uh, Sarah took from you. Can you set up the scene that we're talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, we all have our sort of individual rape scenes in the movie um, that were done very sensitively. And, after, and it, oh, they were always the aftermath of the assault in the night. And mine was, um, I'm sitting on the edge of my bed. I have clearly been socked in the mouth in the middle of the night. And I have, um, my teeth are falling out. Uh, with a fair amount of blood. And basically that was the scene. I just sit at the edge of the bed and wake up kind of wondering what has happened, having been tranquilized and seeing teeth in my hand. So that was the scene. Um, and the next day after we shot it, I went up to Sarah and I said, oh, that was great yesterday. I said, you know, I really wish I'd made my bed I, like, I just think that's something Greta would do. After her teeth fall out, you wish she yeah, would just I wish I just started to make my bed. Why? Well, I think because um, there was the feeling that we weren't going to talk about this, that it was I'm going to complete, I'm going to start my chores. And um, the denial is part of pulling up the covers on my bed that it never happened. And Sarah looked at me and she sort of, she just looked at me. She went, oh, why didn't we do that? And I said, oh, no, that's okay. Like, it's, it's you know, um, it's, it's, it was just an idea. And three months later on the very last day of shooting, uh, everyone had gone home and Sarah came up to me um, in our big communal room and she looked at me and she said, do you want to make your bed? And she had Peter... Um, our incredible uh, production manager put my bedroom back together and um, the crew were informed that we were going to redo my post-assault scene. And we came on the set and um, and Sarah said, we're doing this again because this was Sheila's idea and it's a really good idea and we have time for it and we're, we're just going to finish the movie by, by doing this scene. And so we did the scene and I pulled up my blanket at the end of the scene and, you know, I have to say that very few directors um, are that collaborative. And uh, anyway, that was just a wonderful thing. And we finished the scene and um, we went out into the, the where the set was and, and the crew were waiting. And there were about 200 crew there, a lot of them, most of them Canadian. And they stood and the movie wrapped and they applauded um, – Sarah and me, and I tell you, that was the Oscar for me. I could just cry thinking about that moment. You know, I felt so lucky to be cast in this part, and so, um, you know, 
I'm 66 now, and to have something like this fall into my lap when so many of my friends struggle with jobs and working, and it was such um, it was such a uh, an incredibly beautiful thing for Sarah to give me. It was such a gift to be listened to, and to um, be such an incredible uh, puzzle piece in this film, and 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 also um, we were home. And we were in Toronto, and we were standing in front of our peers um, as two Canadians. And I have just, I'm, I'm very proud of that. Because it feels like there's a through line going all the way back from I've Heard the Mermaid Singing, which was made by women, and then um, give women characters the space to exist on their own. As we land on women talking with Sarah Polly making this film, you in both these films, you know, mm-hmm. through, and one 35 years ago and one now. Mm-hmm. And you work with younger generations too, not just on, on – but you teach as well. Mm-hmm. Like do you – especially for young women actors right now, do you see things changing for the oh, better? A, a thousand percent. I mean even just the landscape of the classes that I'm teaching in now, it's it's just – it's wide open and it's um, – you know uh, – no, the, the the physical, the the gender, the the race, the diversity, the everything is just has split wide open, yeah. and that is um, ex- extremely exciting for me. I just, um, you know, it, it's it's changed so much, and I think we're not there yet. Yeah. I mean, I think we're not there. I mean, we, a couple of weeks ago, we were all on stage with women talking. There was probably 25 women, including the designer and the composer and everybody, and 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 the optics of that were so powerful. And Ben, wish I, but it, um, um, it's it, we we still notice it, and there, I hope that we'll, there will be a, a time for say, the young girls that were in women talking, maybe at some point in their careers where we don't notice it anymore. Yeah. But we're certainly not there yet. Um, but it feels different than when you were. Starting. Oh, it feels very different. Yes, yeah. I mean, I think we're still kicking the door open all the time. Um, it's still special <laughs> that this is happening, and maybe someday it won't be special. What are you most proud of when you were able to take a moment like this on the CBC and look back on the career you have? Oh, I guess that I still get to do it. You know, I, I, I worked with the incredible Sally Field once and she said, Sheila, you must reinvent yourself every five years. And I said, okay. And I took that to heart. You must. You must reinvent. And I said, okay. Um, I feel, uh, I'm just, I, I, I feel extremely proud that I've, I've stayed here and I carved out uh, career here, and that I'm also now going to be recognized um, other places. Like that's that's pretty that's fun. Yeah, that's really fun. And I, you know, um, I get to work with people uh, internationally. Like that is, you know, not that doesn't always happen here in Canada. You know, I get a lot of you look familiar. I don't know your name. <laughs> <laughs> my daughters and I were at a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And the waitress came up. She says, "Oh my God, you look so familiar." And my daughter Mackenzie said, "Oh, that she's Sheila McCarthy." Went, no, that's not her. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, we're a little bit in the witness protection program. I know people come here. up to me and they go, "Geez, Colin Hanks, you have to let yourself oh, go." That's not, <laughs> you got to you gotta start looking after yourself. Oh uh, no, it's yeah. but uh, anyway, it's still fun. I mean, I'm still starstruck getting to meet all the movie stars now is just I was at, at the opening of do we have time yeah oh, I, time for you oh, okay the, your name it, is on the building you okay, can do this is, you oh yeah, yeah right yeah, yeah. This, the, we were at the TIFF opening and we were backstage and Sarah was standing right in front of me with Phoebe Waller-Bridges and Sting 
And I was with my daughter, Drew, and I was trying to get Phoebe Waller-Bridge's attention. You know, like when a waitress won't look at you to get served, like that was Phoebe. And she was just glued to Sarah and she was sobbing and she'd just seen the movie and, and Sting was beside her and I was desperate to meet Fleabag. And didn't happen. They ran away. And I turned to my daughter and I said, oh, my God, that was Fleabag and Sting. And she went, no, it wasn't. That wasn't Sting. That was Martin McDonough. That's her boyfriend. He's a huge director, Mom. Thank God you didn't meet them and sing Roxanne or do something. And so I said, I, okay, I said, okay, really? And I said to Sarah Lair, I said, oh, my God, I thought you were talking to Sting and to Fleabag. And she went. She said, I thought it was Sting, too. And, and it's not. So then we met him. We met him in L.A. a few weeks ago. And we went. Who, Sting or Martin McDonough? Martin McDonough. Okay, no, right, we met right. Martin McDonough. And, and, and we said, oh, it's so nice to meet you. We thought you were Sting. And he went, I get that all the time. I get that all the time. Went, Sarah thought it was Sting, too. Yes, she oh did. I'm so glad you guys didn't walk up and sing Every Breath You Take to him oh or something my God. like that. I know? would have, too. You know, I totally. But it's okay. He said he got that a lot. But that was, that's, oh, my God. That's beautiful. Hey, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Congratulations on the film and on everything. Thank you. Thank you for coming in. And we're not going to make you rebayable for anything. Okay. Oh, God. I hope not. Maybe we should make her read Beowulf. Maybe we could not make her. Maybe we should ask her if she would mind coming in reading Beowulf one day. I could just take the day off. My conversation with the legendary Canadian actor Sheila McCarthy, who stars in the Oscar-winning film Women Talking. If you're listening to Q and you haven't watched Women Talking yet, get it together. It is excellent, and you can watch it wherever you stream your favorite films. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. I want to tell you a story. Veer Das, a few years ago, makes history. He's the first Indian comedian to get a Netflix special, and he films it half in a massive stadium in India and half in a small venue in America. Why? Well, take a listen to this. If you come down to India, I'm a big deal. Check out this stadium that I just filled with my family. And now you're feeling alienated because you don't anticipate that I can make you laugh. You've never met an Indian bloke, you've never heard an Indian joke, so will you understand? Fucking relax. So Veer Das does really well with that special, but then a couple of years later, this happens. He does a speech in D.C. called The Two Indias, which is critical of the Indian government, but also, you know, really fond of his home country. But he gets labeled a terrorist. He's told that when he gets back to India, he'll be arrested when he gets off the plane. He doesn't know what to do. But he decides to respond the only way he knows how, through comedy, through his new Netflix special. It's called Landing. So Virdas came on not that long ago to talk about it all or to talk about not talking about it all. Here's my conversation with Virdas. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for playing my singing up top during the show, which is always uh, uh, it's always good to get the person just feeling ashamed before you start, because my singing voice, like I haven't heard that in years and, and with good reason. 
So yeah. As a as an Irish Catholic, in order to get you on my level, I like to try to make you feel as much shame as possible right off the top. Right. So bring him down to earth by playing him his own singing <laughs> voice, and then we can ask him questions. I like it. C- congratulations on the show, man. Thank you, man. Touchwood, it's being received very well. You start getting this really big following. I think it starts in a broad understanding, right? In 2017, you shot that in the US and in India, right? Yes, yeah. I shot it in a stadium in Delhi in a club in uh, in New York. To sort of show that like... Comedy works whether you know me or not. You know? Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, and that jokes that are really, really powerful in India are just as powerful in New York City to a basement full of Americans. That comedy is universal. And your food looks so good, man. I saw an ad for French fries on TV the other day. It should have won an Oscar. I don't know why it didn't. Maybe a black guy made it. I'm not sure, but... Thank you, racist. (laughs) That special kind of made you blow up on sort of a global level, right? I was able to tour the world after that show, certainly, you know, and and have been able to do so. God's been kind every year since that show. But also with with an interesting mix of demographic. There are enough Indians all over the world where you will be able to tour the world as an Indian artist, right? But but to get suddenly... 30% 30% Canadians or 50% Americans or, you know, uh, 20% British people, etc. in your audience, along with the 80% Indian people, uh, that I think comes from a Netflix. So let's, let's, let's just talk about it. So in, in November, 20, um, it, the same time you're being celebrated at the international Emmys, mm-hmm. you're yeah. sort of being condemned for a speech you gave a week earlier at the Kennedy Center in, in Washington mm-hmm. called I, I Come From Two Indias, where you talk about yeah. what you love about India and then also you know what you, what you hope would be different. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could just, as much as you can here, I mean, talk a little bit about, about that speech, about filming it, about, about putting it up on, on YouTube where like millions of people have seen it. Well, I don't think you get to predict when you create a conversation, right? So to me, it was just another YouTube video in the vein of many other YouTube videos that I've done before. But at that particular moment in time, it happened to touch a chord. And I still can't tell you why it did, to be very honest with you. It was something that was written on the afternoon of the speech. I I wanted to try something since you're all, uh, you know, you, you, this is a, a moment for me. So at... Uh, is it okay if I make a small video with you guys before I leave? Would that be all right, yeah? My wife and I were touring DC and, and we were like, we need a photographer. So we got a wedding photographer who happened to be unemployed on a Sunday. And he shot the thing. You know, there, there's a paper in my hand because I don't fully remember it. It's fresh material. Um, so we just shot something that went up on YouTube. Um, and if you go through my YouTube, there are various videos about duality or the nation, you know, asking questions, etc. But for some reason, this just went insane. I come from an India where old leaders will not stop talking about their dead fathers and young leaders will not stop following their living mothers. I come from an India that has the largest working population under 30 on the planet, but still listens to 75-year-old leaders with 150-year-old ideas. I come. All of a sudden, we've got millions and millions and millions of views. And... I happen to be going to the Emmys at that moment in time. So it was this strange kind of, you know, uh, uh, strange duality in my life. I think the way to put it in perspective is I'm an artist and an artist's job, and I specifically think an Indian artist's job is to take your feedback, mouth shut, head down, 
right? Any feedback to me is valid feedback at the end of the day. So however you feel about, about a piece of content, it's our job to kind of honor that piece of content, uh, to honor your feedback, to learn from it. Uh, art is imperfect. I believe it deserves the freedom to be imperfect, you know, without uh, being crashed down upon. Um, but at some point I was just like, whatever's happening to me, is it fair or not? Or is it big or not? I, I think as a comedian, who cares? Uh, very honestly. The real yeah. question you ask yourself as a comedian is, is this funny? Or is this ridiculous? Yeah. Or is this a, yeah. a good story? Absolutely. So then you you end up not doing a press run, never kind of talking about it, etc. You honor the feedback, but you shut up and you write jokes about it. And that's kind of what I did. And And then over the course of a year, something that began with drama ends up making millions of people laugh, you know, and yeah. brings millions of people's joy on, on Netflix and abroad. And I think that's the only way to kind of take control of your narrative as an artist. Can you tell me more about the drama that, that, I mean, for people who don't know. It was just outrage, you know, it was tons and tons of outrage. I was on the news, um, people filed complaints and then, within, you know, and I talk about it in the special as well. So in, in a moment like that, you go underground, right? You shut your phone off and you go underground because you're getting threats, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, 45 days later, you turn your phone on and you receive love that you never thought existed in the darkest moment of your life. So I think the theme of the special is if you're ever at the receiving end of outrage or hate, just kind of hang in there and know that love is on its way. Uh, I think a lot of people don't have time or the luxury of outweighing the outrage cycle. And I happen to have that time and luxury. And this was kind of the learning of that, you know? Well, let's, let's know? listen to a little bit of the special. Take a listen to this. The headline said, Veer Das is a terrorist. And I just remember thinking, this is so insulting to actual terrorists. <laughs> Can you imagine how terrorists feel? They're like, bro, this guy? We choreograph acts of violence 10 years in advance. But now we have to do spoken word performance, apparently. It's my guest, Veer Das, performing in his latest stand-up special, Landing, which is out on, on Netflix now. T talk to me about the moment you started writing jokes about it. <laughs> I think that might have been my second one. I think the first one was, uh, I was on the BBC homepage, and the BBC said, comedian polarizes the nation. And I think it was, do you know how badly you have to mess up before the British say that you divided <laughs> India? Uh, <laughs> is the joke. So, but if you look at the the two jokes, I'm the butt of both jokes, you know, that I would be a lousy terrorist. Uh, I would be very, very little value add to a terrorist group. And also that, uh, you know, that the British think I messed up. So in that sense, it is taking it on the chin and finding a sense of humor about it. So I think those were the first two jokes that I wrote. And then I was like, okay, because the minute I walk out into a room, the minute I walk out into a club, they're thinking it because it's the first time you've seen the guy since. The minute Chris Rock comes out at the end of his thing, I don't think he gets to wait too long in the special before he talks about it. You know, that that's something that you have to figure out, which is maybe I have 11 minutes before we go into this because they're going to be thinking it for the first 11 minutes until I go into it. So I was like, the first time I say something, it's got to be funny uh, and it's got to be humble and it shouldn't be arrogant at all. So, yeah. There is a great Indian diaspora, you know, I mean, including 
in particular here in Canada and in, in, in Toronto where I am right now. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll say that the first thing you get is actually mm-hmm. just a lot of love, a lot of applause. And, and I'm sure given going through what you went through, you must have felt something in that too. My job is also to take you home. You know, half the people that have come in there tonight haven't been in a group of a room with that many Indians in so long. They're listening to music from back home. Half the the the, the foreigners who are in there are scared to death because they don't know if, if they're going to understand anything that evening. You know, there's, there's tension in the room. Uh, I got to perform, man. It's my job. This is, It's not about me. It's about you. You're very practical. I, I'm not practical. I'm, I'm lucky. You know, I, I remember a time when nobody would show up. You know, I've, I've certainly gone through enough of that. The fact that you can put a poster of me up somewhere in some random corner of the world and then people want to show up because they see a poster, that's insane. It's absolutely insane. You know, uh, I have to honor that. And by the way, I think that's in there lies longevity. You know, uh, if you can come to my show and it never, ever seems self-indulgent, but it made you feel the best you had felt in the last six months, you'll always come back. So in that sense, it's good business as well. To give you perspective, 70% of my audience right now is between the age of 18 and 25 years old. Right? Uh-huh. And so my tickets are expensive and ever so more expensive to an 18 to 25 year old college kid. That's not an easy ticket yeah. to buy. Now, if I read... If I let somebody who's calling me something or trolling me or or doing all of this stuff, if I let them bring my mind from 100% down to 80% so that I'm not at 100% for that college kid who saved for three months to come and see me, I'm being unprofessional. You know, that's, that's truly how I view it. If you're showing up, I honor you above everybody else. And that means I have to be 200% for you, which means I have to be strong and my skin has to be thick. And I have to get through it really quick, you know. Where do you, um, where do you want to go from here now, hopes-wise here? I am sitting on a gigantic opportunity where everybody who comes and sees me is earlier came on because of reputation. And I think now is coming in with reputation and an emotional connection. It's very different, you know. And so... I get to honor that by writing a slightly different show, you know, because everybody who comes in is is kind of, we know each other a little bit more. I've, I've never put myself out there in a show before. And if they've seen landing on and they come post, they just know me a little bit better. So maybe I get to take a few more liberties. Maybe I get to go into some, some different places because now we know each other. Think of this as, you know, foreplay done. Uh, this is our fifth date now, you know? So, that's what I'm excited about. I want to write the show where nobody can breathe because they're laughing so hard. That's kind of what I want to do. Any plans to come back to Canada anytime soon? For sure. We had a great run when we were there. I'll come back soon. Right now, I have three new minutes of jokes. So it's going to be a while. <laughs> you know, let me get a show together first. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, you got a, you got a way to go yet. Hey, lovely to meet yeah. you. Thanks for coming on. Good to see you, man. Thank you for having me. Veer Das's latest stand-up special is called Landing. You can find it on Netflix, as well as his earlier specials, which are all worth a watch.
I'm Tom Power. That's it for the show today. You might have heard the news that the Spice Girls declined an invitation to perform at the coronation of King Charles. That might surprise some people, but when you listen to Melanie C. or Sporty Spice, she'll tell you the Spice Girls have always done things their own way. So she'll be here to talk about her new memoir, The Sporty One. We'll see you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.